Well, good morning. I have to tell you, I love stories, and it is my understanding that we all love stories. Even if you don't read, which is fine, you love stories. I've noticed if you just study our culture, um, whether it's sports, you go to get a haircut, you go to the movies, um, you just visit friends, we all want to hear the stories. If your pulse spikes up a little bit when someone says, hey, did you hear? You like stories. We're a people of stories, not just we as Americans, not just we as members of First Baptist Carrollton. We as human beings are obsessed with stories. You can go all the way back. Most of our archaeology is finding stories of ancient people. They wrote it on their walls. They painted it with their hands. We are storytelling people, whether that's movies, books, whatever. There are stories everywhere. Now, if you're a nerd like me, you don't just like stories, you study stories. And so I did a little more digging this week in preparation for this. And I've always heard that there are only three types of stories. So take everything I just said, there's only three types. Um, In research, there's actually a great debate in this. Um, There's either 36, some people say there's only 36 stories. Um, There's only 25. I'm sticking with three personally, but a really famous one that just came out uh, in the early 90s. Um, This man, his name's Christopher Booker. He is an author and a professor of literature, so very important, very big deal. Um, He said there are seven. There are only seven stories in all of human civilization, writing, storytelling, and everything that we tell falls into those seven patterns, those seven stories. So if you will, I will tell you the seven stories. The first one is overcoming the monster. Pretty self-explanatory. Number two is rags to riches. Number three is the quest. Think Lord of the Rings, the quest type of model. Um, Number four is voyage and return. So the Odyssey, the Iliad, um, pretty much anything that American movie makers make. Um, Number five is rebirth. Very common rebirth stories just across all religions across the world. Um, Number six is comedy. Raise your hand, comedy. Anyone like a good, a good laugh, a good chuckle? That's not just us. That's human beings. We love comedy. And then number seven, tragedy. Um, there's something about the depths of emotion, of seeing something happen and feeling it that we, we cling to, we love to. For some reason, we're attracted to. Um, and so there's these seven. And any story you can think of, according to Christopher Booker anyway, falls under those seven. Now, in the Bible, pretty large book, pretty sequence, depth, nuance, um, all of these patterns are present. There's tons of stories, tons of people, but the main topic and the main subject of the Bible is God. He is the main character in this book. In all 66 individual chapters or books or letters or however you describe them, God is the main subject. You see, the Bible as a whole is a quest story. Out of the seven, I finally narrowed it down. It took a long time. It is a quest. It is God's story and God's decision to save fallen humanity and be with them through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Like I said, there was some thinking that went into this. I'll say it one more time. The Bible as a whole is a quest. It is God's story and God's decision to save fallen humanity and be with them through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
So in this book, the main character interacts with people throughout history, throughout time, and cultures and races and peoples and all sorts of things. Um, and it is all building up to and because of Jesus Christ. And the following chapters and letters and the book of Revelation, whatever you want to put that in, um, all of it is because of Jesus Christ and is continuing that story. That is the goal of the Bible and the center of everything that happens in it. It changes how you read it, right? If God is the main character, all of a sudden you see a lot of messed up weird people, but they're, they're parts of the story. They're not the main part. We're here to see what the subject has to say about himself, what the author is writing about himself, and that author is God. The Bible never seeks to prove God. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, it is not a science te- textbook. Um, it is God saying, this is the message I have for humanity. This is the story that I am telling. So Abraham is fairly early in the story, just the visual. There's a few, few chapters left to go in Abraham's time. He's very early on in this. Um, before we get to the person of Jesus, as I said before, we build up to who he is and why he is important. So you get to the four Gospels, you get really good stuff. That's the pinnacle of stuff. But what gives it depth and context is what happened before. So we have Abraham. Abraham is Jesus' earliest ancestor and the first to be called apart by God. You get God's people, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, whatever name you prefer, because of Abraham. In Genesis 13, we have a critical moment in Abraham's story. It extends through multiple chapters of Genesis, and chapter 13 is a a splitting of the ways. It is a decision point in Abraham's life and in this story. Lot and Abraham have become incredibly rich. You thought you were rich? You thought you were well off? You don't have anything on these people. They are filthy rich. They are so rich they can't live next to each other because of all their stuff. So that's, that's a high level of richness where you literally have to separate from your family because you've got too much. So it's not a typical rags to riches story. Um, I am classifying it as that. Um, but the true treasure is not their possessions, their animals, their money, their wives, all that good stuff. Um, the true treasure is God. It is the Bible. It is different than a normal story. Lot and Abraham separate. Um, They've been together. They've left the foreign land. They've left their families, and they've come to this place, and they have to choose. And Abraham, being the gracious guy that he is, it's actually a very humble move. Um, He lets his younger, dumber nephew pick for himself. And so the Bible says in verse 10, that Lot lifts up his eyes, he raises his eyes, and he sees what's around him, and he chooses for himself. Um, Literally, the Bible says he chooses for himself. Um, He gives up his rights to God's land. That's a critical part. He gives up the promised land, and he goes and makes his own way. He pitches his tent literally outside of God's promises. So if you read chapter 12, God promises. Chapter 13, Lot says, I'll go that other way. There you go. Geography in action. Um, He ignores the red flag of the evil people there. Um, Verse 13 literally says, The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And Lot picks the nice-looking area. Um, It's well-watered. There's good people around there, I guess, just on face value. And he decides to put his family and his livestock and his money into that place. And if you've read ahead, 
spoilers, it doesn't go well for Lot. It's just not a good road. It's not an easy road. Um, I find it fascinating. The old or the New Testament actually says that Lot was a righteous man, but he he barely squeaked by. Um, he had troubles. He had hardships. Um, he got in. You know, the New Testament says he is there. He is with God's people. Um, but he got there by the skin of his teeth. You know, he had he had a rough time. But we'll leave Lot for now, and we'll focus on Abraham. Um, and as Jill wonderfully read for us, God tells Abram, um, lift up your eyes and I will give this to you. If you've ever been to Israel, if someone says, look around you, you truly can look around you. Um, I've never been personally, but I've seen tons of pictures. Um, one of our youth actually went and showed me a bunch of pictures and it was beautiful, beautiful land. But you can see for miles, I mean, miles and miles and miles. It is the exact opposite of Georgia. Um, everything's rocky. There's barely any trees. It's just flat. You know, there's hills. We call them mountains. There's hills. But you can see forever and ever and ever. So when God says, lift up your eyes and see, he's very literally saying, see. And so he says, I will give this to you. God promises, instead of letting Abram just take what he had, instead of letting Abram choose, um, Abram steps aside and lets God choose for him. So God gives him not only the land, the little ground on his feet, but he gives him the blessing and the presence of himself, of God himself, as a guarantee to Abram and to his descendants forever. So Lot may have gotten a nice river and some nice trees. Um, Abram got the fellowship of God for all eternity, um, in which we are part of that lineage now. And so I have to ask you, if we're in the same spot as Abraham, Knowing what we know, we've read the rest of the book, we've heard the stories, um, wouldn't we choose the same thing? Give up our rights, step back for a second and say, God, you just choose. I'll take what you give me. And in the end, Abram gets way more than he could have asked for for himself. I hope I speak for all of us that as a church and as an individual believer, we choose God. I hope to think that if you came to church today, at some level, you say, I choose God. This is, this is the path I want to walk. I want to walk with him. Oswald Chambers, a great Christian and a great devotional writer as well, said this about Abraham and his walk with God. Have I any confidence in the flesh? Or have I got beyond all confidence in myself and in men and women of God in books and prayers and ecstasies, and is my confidence placed now in God himself, not in his blessings. The one thing for which we are all being disciplined is to know that God is real. Abraham's story goes on for a while in Genesis. Chapter 13 is not the end of it. He goes through years and years of learning to trust God, of learning what faith and obedience and life on a different level looks like. As I said, in chapter 13, the story should be over, right? He's rich. He has everything. What else is there to go? But God is taking him deeper and deeper and deeper to where at the end of his life, Abraham's most prized possession is not his goats, um, his sons, his great land that he's been sitting in in tents for years. Um, it is his walk and his relationship with God. So for you note-takers out there, here are three things we can learn about walking with God from Abraham in these verses. Verse 14, 
Abraham listened to God. We don't know if Lot was in on this conversation, if Lot understood that to go and move away was to be separated from God, but we know that Abraham stayed and he sat, and before doing anything, he listened. He just opened his ears and stopped talking, and he listened to what God had to say. Verse 17, Abraham walked with God. Quite literally in these verses, he is walking the breadth of the land with God, but I think we can safely say spiritually, he walked with God all of his life. He said, this is who I will bind myself to, as God himself is binding himself to Abraham, and says, my choices and my values and my life will be in this direction with this God. Abraham walked with God every day of his life. And finally, and most beautifully to me, verse 18, after all this, after all this walking and listening and understanding what God has said, Abraham worshipped God. The natural response to everything that God had just done for him, to choosing for him, to giving him all this, was worship. He builds an altar there and worships the Lord. So as I said at the beginning, love stories. I think we can all agree we got that today. I like stories. It's good stuff. Um, I love telling stories. I love hearing stories. Um, If I hear a really good story, I feel like a little kid again. Just sit me down, give me some popcorn, and tell me, tell me something good. Tell me something worth listening to. Um, I love the pieces of stories and how they fit together, all the, the techniques and categories, and I really miss my calling as a debater. I would have loved it, or an attorney, who knows. Um, but I became a pastor, and now I just get to tell you about stories. Um, one piece of storytelling technique is called Chekhov's Gun. Has anyone heard of this? Raise your hand if you have heard of Chekhov's Gun. No one? No, Glenn? No, I'm the only person, really? That's totally fine. After this, you can tell all your friends at work and at the pool and stuff about Chekhov's gun. They'll love it and forget about it immediately. Um, so, <laughs> so Chekhov's gun is named after Chekhov. All right, y'all are tracking. Good. You're still listening. Um, it is a rule in storytelling that says that at the beginning of a story, if a character enters a room and there is a gun hanging on the mantle, before that story ends, the gun must go off. Make sense? Chekhov's gun? It's literally the gun? Yeah. Um, every single movie, book, story, heck, even sports, use Chekhov's gun. You have literally been immersed in Chekhov's gun your entire life, and you don't even know it. Um, action movies and superhero movies are perfect at this. Um, the hero always has to learn some special move or use some tool that he can't get at the beginning of the movie. He has it, he's struggling, he can't quite get it. And the only way he can win at the end of the movie is by using that move, that story, that power, whatever. Um, he has to. That's just storytelling. And we're so used to it, you don't even know what the name is, but you'll start seeing it everywhere. You're welcome, Chekhov's gun. Um, Chekhov's gun points to opportunity. It literally has to exist in a story for something to happen. For it to exist is in giant letters, the author saying, something is happening in this story. Just bright billboard sign, right? Chekhov's gun, something has to happen. We, by the simple fact of being God's church, are Chekhov's gun. All right, y'all are still here. This is good. Okay. Our very existence 
as a church, as a community here in 2021 in Carrollton, Georgia, points to the fact that something absolutely has to happen here. First Baptist Carrollton exists not just to be here as a cool thing, but it is a giant beacon to the world shouting, God is, one, doing something, but also is going to do something here. Um, If you're here this morning and you see the train and the decorations, um, every little kid knows when they enter in, VBS is about to happen. Something is happening. It's just simple opportunity that there's going to be an event, something is going to change, and we as the church exist here in the exact same way. We are God's opportunity to act in the world, both as a church, as individual Christians, simply by existing physically in this location, that by choosing to trust God, we become God's opportunity for change to happen. We are the action piece of the story. Oftentimes we think we're the subject of the story, when really it is still God's story. We may not be in the pages of the book, but we are leapfrogging from that into God's story in the world. We are here to trust God, to become God's opportunity, to become God's hands and feet for his son to shine forth, for Jesus to be glorified, for worship to happen, for the kingdom to come. If this was just a normal club or gathering of just cool people with donuts and coffee, that's great. That's a social thing. But we believe by the scriptures that when we come to church, when we come to VBS or there's a dunk tank for the youth this afternoon or whatever ridiculous thing we're doing, that it's not just for fun. It is for a divine encounter to take place, for God to say, I am here. Lift up your eyes and see what I have for you. This is your portion in me, that you get to be used, you get to be part of this grand tapestry, this grand story that I am writing, that God himself writes for us. Like Abraham, our lives matter in the grand story that God continues to tell. As we listen, God speaks through each of us. As we walk, God shows us where we are to love. As we worship, God makes this place into a promised land, into the promised land where we and others can encounter Jesus Christ. Not the memory, not the story, but we believe through the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ himself is present here today. And that change happens, the story happens. I don't know about you, but that's pretty exciting. Um, It makes church alive and vibrant and powerful And we're not just here. This isn't just in between the dates, if you know what I mean. This is our purpose and our identity as Christians. Because the story is not over. We're not done. We're not tired. We're not discouraged. We're not defeated. God is on the move, to quote C.S. Lewis. Aslan is on the move. Um, Right now, we may feel a bit off. It's okay. It's been a strange couple of years Um, with random pandemics and retirements and change. Change causes us to feel uncomfortable. It's a bit like when you're walking and you have a rock stuck in your shoe. You can't get it out, but you have to keep on walking anyway, and you just keep kicking. Eventually, the rock gets loose, and you keep on going. Jesus is on the move, and he needs us. 
and he wants us to choose him. Will you walk with him today? Amen.